thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me, and I think we're going to have a a great episode today because it's being driven by a new after-school club in Tennessee, and I think there are maybe a few other such clubs in a few other states. And to be honest, I'd love to be able to have some of my friends like Jason Farley and Chuck Knox, George Grant here to talk through this with, but I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to take some clips from um, a couple of Chuck Knox Unplugged episodes and the live event we did here in Nashville with Dr. Grant to inject them into today's topic that, in a way that I hope you will find really, really helpful. And and what I want to do, as much as we might lament and ought to lament the existence of these clubs in public schools, is is to think about it in light of 2 Corinthians 4.15 that, that tells us that all things are for our sakes. So there's something here that we can learn from this cultural directional pointer if we'll seek the wisdom that is in Christ that the Holy Spirit will supply if we seek God diligently and wait on him for that wisdom. And one of the things that I've noticed in many Christian legal policy political circles and and, and among Christians in general, uh, particularly with respect to these spheres, is a a general rush to do something. You know, we've got to enact a statute. We need a law uh, to address this problem when perhaps we may not have spent enough time or the time we needed to really understand the true nature of the problem, and therefore we don't know the the true proper solution. I remember reading uh, the following. I'm going to quote here uh, just a moment from the exposition of Psalm 130 by John Owen, who was the Puritan preacher uh, that was counsel to Oliver Cromwell during a decisive period of the English history from which our nation uh, benefited. And, And here's what he wrote about waiting on God from Psalm 130. The proper object of a sin-distressed soul's waiting and expectation, and, and that ought to be us, right? We should be distressed by the sin around us, and, and, um, and it is, is God himself, he says, as revealed in Christ. I have, said the psalmist, waited for Jehovah. It is not this or that mercy or grace, this or that help or relief, but it is Jehovah himself that I wait for. Here then, he says, we must do two things, and this is what he's going to do in his sermon, if you were to look it up and read it, is first show in what sense God himself is the object of the waiting of the soul. And secondly, he said, how it appears from that, from from actually seeking God himself, the knowledge of God and of his ways, and uh, is is it shows that waiting is a necessary duty. He goes on to say, first, it is the Lord himself, Jehovah himself, that the soul waits for. 
is not grace or mercy or relief absolutely considered, but the God of all grace and help. That is the full, adequate object of the soul's waiting and expectation. And then he adds this second part, that when we do this, it will, he says, show the reasonableness of the duty which we are pressing into, namely, to wait on God quietly and patiently in every condition of distress. Now he goes on to say, waiting is a very active thing, because when you're seeking God, seeking his face, seeking to know him, plowing through the scriptures to say, oh, God, give me a greater understanding of just who you are, that we will then see how it is that we should respond to those distresses that come about through sin and the fall. So I think sometimes we act so quickly to do something because our knowledge of God and the cosmos he created and how it works and how he governs it is perhaps so limited. And as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, our, our Father knows what we need, and he will supply what we need. But part of that knowing is that he knows the meeting of that need in relation to the timing of meeting it. When the time is for the supply of this wisdom and this knowledge and what we need is ready when it's ripe and most effective for his purposes not ours, but his, both individually and for the body of Christ that he's organizing. That's what he's after, right? A people for his own possession. And, and, and he'll supply it. And because we know that God is a father who loves us, as demonstrated in creation in the way he made us and gave us dominion over this very good creation, in the way that God the Son took on human flesh, not just to restore us, but, but to bring us by the work of God the Holy Spirit into that fullness of glory, that not just earthly man, but spiritual man that we were intended for, well, then we can know and be fully persuaded that we can trust him to supply what we need when we need it. And so waiting is not in vain. In, in fact, we're told that we labor in vain not just in building a house if we build it without him, but I, I think the, that passage of Scripture in the Psalms refers to labor in vain in the building of anything, including systems of law and civil government, if we build without him. And, and building that house of law and civil government is part of the dominion mandate. I mean, there are some pastors, I think, that would deny that, and the dominion mandate extends to only... What happens inside the four walls of a church? But if, we're, if we understand what we were made to be and how Christ is restoring what we were made to be and what his end game was in making creation and, and us in his image and, and the dominion mandate, well, it has to go beyond the four walls of the church. But, but note this, because I think it's important. That mandate was given in a perfect garden. And it was perfect garden because God planted it for Adam and Eve. But in its planting, the dominion mandate was directing 
that toward the expansion of that garden to Eden and then the wilderness. But it's as they were prior to the fall when all was still very good. And I mentioned that prior to the fall, not to say that that uh, abrogated the dominion mandate because it could not without completely destroying what man is because man made in the image of God will exercise dominion, rightly or wrongly, consistent with God's covenant purposes or not. But I do suggest, and, and I think we'll talk more about it next week, that carrying out the dominion mandate must take account of the conditions that exist where the garden is to be extended and then planted. So, for example, um, a couple of years ago, I was thinking about planting some carrots. So I asked my dad once, who grew up on a farm, if if my grandfather, his dad, had ever planted carrots. I was thinking of planting them, right? And, and I thought he could give me some tips on my little patch of carrots. And dad said, oh, no, son, we never did. The soil was too rocky. In other words, I had to have the right kind of soil for the carrots to grow properly. When I would have thought, well, I've got dirt, I've got the planting or the seed here, I've got that water sun, uh, yep, check, you know. Uh, well, you just use the dirt and the plant and they grow when you eat it. It's, it's simple, right? Well, no, it wasn't that simple. And I believe we ought to take this kind of knowledge to heart because of what we find in Isaiah 28, which just affirms that God himself teaches us through creation about himself and gardening properly, which is what the dominion mandate in its rudimentary formulation was. It was about tending and cultivating the garden and expanding and growing the garden. So in, in that passage in Isaiah 28, we find beginning in 24, Isaiah asks some rhetorical questions. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? There the answer would be, well, no. And then in verse 25, he asks another rhetorical question about how things are planted once once the plowing's done. And he says, when he's leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in an appointed place, and the spelt in its place? And the answer there is different. It's well, yes, he, he does. And then he makes this grace summing up statement in verse 26. For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. See, God was teaching and instructing the farmer in how to garden properly particular things. And I would submit that this would be an example of the kind of primeval gardening called for by the dominion mandate. And my point is simply this. By beginning in the garden with the duty to tend and keep it, the place where God was to meet with Adam and Eve, that was where they were to learn what gardening required so that they could apply it as they moved further out into Eden and then into the wilderness. 
And, and this would have been required before the fall, right? They, they needed to learn from the garden even before the fall. But that learning is still required even though the gardening and the expansion of the garden became harder. And to be honest, this was so well said in an exchange between Jason Farley, who uh, many of you know is a regular guest on Knox Unplugged, and Dr. George Grant, pastor here in Franklin, at, at our um, Knox Unplugged live event we had in Nashville, uh, March of uh, last year. And, and to set up this little clip, it begins with Jason speaking about creation as uh, the metaphorical context for understanding First Timothy. And then when Jason is through, Dr. Grant injects an observation about Second Timothy. And, and I think it bears wonderfully on what I was just saying about the importance of learning how to tend and cultivate the garden before we began to tame the rest of Eden and the wilderness. Uh, it, it's it's the, 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 the book of Genesis, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, um, really the first you know, uh, um, leading up to Abraham, that whole section, he pulls from that for me, just the metaphors of how he interacts with people. The entire book of 1 Timothy is is constructed around the metaphor of the Garden of Eden, of the church being the restored garden of God, of, of the pastors being Adam but not falling like him, of the church being Eve but being actually protected rather than experimented on by her husband. Right? The, you've got the, the entire book of Timothy is, a lo- the, the argument is a long extended metaphor about the Garden of Eden. And, and Second Timothy picks up at Babel and goes forth. Oh my gosh, you're right. Now let's 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 tie this in, this metaphor of creation into what the Satanic Temple said about the Satan Club. Now listen to this. The organization claimed that it offers a non theistic religion with Satan present as a metaphorical literary figure and that its after-school clubs don't attempt to convert children to any religious ideology. And when you understand what Jason and George were saying there about creation as a metaphor for constructing and rightly governing the church and then dealing with with the aftermath of Babel next, I, I think you'll see why this was so brilliantly stated. I mean, if, if I'd been a member of the Satanic Temple, and I'm not, I would have wished I could have come up with something so well stated. I mean, it is an in-your-eye statement to Christians that I suspect many Christians wouldn't even appreciate and understand what they're really saying. And... uh and, and it's just, oh, devastating. This may harken back to some of what you heard when you listened to the podcast um, from the live event back in March that was entitled, A World Ends When Its Metaphor Dies. And um, 
that that event included Jason and Knox, George Grant and me, and we were trying to drive home the point that metaphors help us understand our world. And and here is what, if, if you didn't listen to it or you don't remember, uh, if you were at the event, here, here was here was the conclusion that should have been drawn from that event. When the the metaphor of Christendom in Western Europe throughout the medieval period, the Middle Ages, and that's important to keep in mind that time period. We're going to come back to it in in a moment. And and then throughout the Puritan Revolution in England, when when that period ended or during that period, I guess you could say, Jesus was seen as the centralizing explanatory figure for understanding the nature of the cosmos, the kind of place this is and what it's for and how it works. And Jesus was, in essence, that metaphor that gave meaning and order and and structure to our understanding of the world. And when that metaphor dies and it has, that world, based on that metaphor, dies. And my part of the program that day was to explain the metaphor that had informed the development of law, which was a biblical cosmology, and why that metaphor was now gone, and why, as a result, the law and civil government structures formed thereby were dead and gone. They exist as a shell of themselves, but their substance is dead. Okay? I mean, the protection the Satan Club received from the First Amendment free exercise and free speech clauses should be evidence that the substance of that form we had or embodied in that form is dead and gone. And I think the fact is we need to adjust our thinking to the fact that we no longer live in the kind of cosmos that gave rise to our law and civil government. That soil in which it grew and was nourished is gone. What was fertile and fruitful is now like my grandfather's farm with respect to carrots. It's rocks, and carrots won't grow there. Now, I'm not saying... To continue the analogy, Christianity is dead and it can't grow. But I am saying we have to think about the soil in which we're trying to work to restore the appropriate and right metaphor that Jesus Christ is the centralizing figure for understanding all of reality. So don't hear hear me. I'm, I'm not suggesting that our values and principles need to be surrendered or compromised. I'm not saying or suggesting we need to modulate in any way on the inerrancy and the infallibility and the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm not saying those things. I'm simply saying we no longer exist in the world in which those things that formed us and shaped us fill the air we breathe. That, That world doesn't exist anymore. At best, we live off a few fumes and perhaps increasingly faint flickers of light from dying embers, as de Tocqueville put it once. But but the satanic simple is telling us, <laughs> your world is dead, Mr. Christian. The world as you developed it, we have now killed. 
and we put our figure in place of yours. And, and that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying actually that Jesus was just a literary figure, not real. Everybody knows the all that is is matter and nature. There is no supernature. There is no supernatural. So Jesus himself had to be a literary figure. And of course, they're falsely suggesting that Satan is now that literary figure. So, so they're saying that's the metaphor by which we want children to now understand the world. And, and, and listen, this is, this is cool. I didn't pick this up when I first read it. That's why they're saying they're not attempting to convert your children. Because they know the cosmology in which those kids live and move and have their being will over time do that converting work for them if they can keep our cosmology out. Now, just to substantiate what I'm saying here, consider what Karl Marx wrote in 1844 in his introduction to a critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. Of course, Hegel was a German, right? And he was one of the leading teachers of a, of a pantheism cloaked in Christian connotation words. But, but this is what Marx wrote, and I think you'll see how this ties in. The critique of religion is the essential precondition for all criticism. So if you want to change the world, you have to change religion. He goes on. Secular errors are discredited once their sacred expressions have been refuted. In other words, the heavens have been understood to define the world, and if you can discredit the heavens, you can change the way we see the world and change the way we see the errors that we've committed. He continues, man who sought a superhuman being in the fantastic reality of heaven and found nothing there but a reflection of himself, will no longer be inclined to find a mere non-human semblance of himself where he seeks and must seek his true reality. Now understand what he's saying here. Romans 5.14, it says Adam was a type of Christ. Adam was pointing to this supernatural being. To understand who we are, we look to the supernatural and Marx is saying you critique the supernatural and man will no longer look to find who he is up there, but just within himself. Well, doesn't that help explain homosexuality and transgenderism? And then he continues, and keep in mind here that this is an introduction by Marx to the thinking of Hegel, a German. Marx says the only possible practical liberation of Germany is a liberation that proceeds from the theory that man is the highest being for a man. In other words, it's not the natural man comes first and then the spiritual man. It's, no, what came first was the spiritual man. I'm quoting here from 1 Corinthians 15. And that's now phony, so all there is left is the natural man. 
Germany, now listen to this, this is good. Germany will not be able to liberate itself from the Middle Ages unless it liberates itself at the same time from the partial victories over the Middle Ages. So there we go. Starting in the Middle Ages, we find that Jesus became the metaphor by which we understood everything, and partial victories over it isn't enough. We have to finish this critique, abolish it, and now what we see is Satan coming out of the dark back corner of the school cloakroom into the halls and lobbies. And there you understand why there's been such a pitched battle against anything about creation or even the critiquing of evolution in our schools. That premise had to be eliminated. And it being eliminated, now the Satan clubs are emboldened. I just think this is so important. And I pray you're getting what I'm talking about. So what I'd like to suggest is that we're now in the same place Adam was when he turned upside down the hierarchical structure of God under man over the rest of creation, which, of course, entailed those civilizing and cultural creating aspects entailed in the dominion mandate. He, he turned it upside down because Adam placed the creature, represented by the serpent, as the authority in place of God. And in doing so, he placed himself under the serpent. And look what happened to the dominion mandate. It was still in effect. God and his word never change. But by that reversal, the dominion mandate, including the development of civilization and culture, was to be perverted in all its ways and means and purposes because now we're under as Paul says in Romans, the dominion of sin. And its dominion, even as Christ's is in the new creation, is universal, meaning it, it pervades every aspect of our creaturely existence. Even creation itself groans because of Adam's fall, as we're told in Romans chapter 8. So here's the question I guess I want to ask for today. Do we realize the extent and depth of our problem? Is our problem our abortion laws, our marriage laws, our voter identification and registration laws, our border enforcement? And I can go on with any number of things that are all wrong, but the answer is they are not our problem, but a fruit of the problem. Okay? And, and that's why I said on my broad, broadcast about abortion being a capital offense for every abortive mother, mother is that we have a lot of repenting to do beyond how we've handled abortion. And I'm not sure many Christians realize it. I mean, I didn't even realize it until the last few years. And, and here's where I see as a problem Christians are facing in the sphere of law and civil government and politics. And, and too many of us are acting as if we still live in the garden or perhaps under the old metaphor system by which our laws developed over the course of centuries under God's good providence. But we don't. And I think that's what Doug Wilson meant 
uh, when he said, and I quoted him a few weeks ago, that we must read the Word and the world. That is not pragmatism. It is saying we must understand the times, like the sons of Issachar, if we're to know what to do, to know how to apply that word with wisdom to the times. Well, I had a bunch more I wanted to get to today, and we'll have to continue it next week. But next week, I want us to look at the cosmology that I think we've embraced that makes us think if we can change some laws, things will get straightened out. And I'll suggest that that thinking, and this is where I'll use Knox and uh, Jason Farley and George Grant, that thinking is really no different from that of the atheists. And you're never going to defeat the atheists and the Satan clubs by thinking about the world and law the same way they do. And I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.